0: Oh, she's glad, Captain. If I push it any harder, the whole thing will blow. Y'all know me, the EIC of the INV, but I keep it low key, letting it flow about markets and money, rolling deep on Insta, TikTok, and TV, keeping it a buck always between you and me, trying harder to stay smarter, not lucky, always ready, staying steady, keeping our heads when it gets heady, hot to trot, bond yields pop, stocks are sinking, everyone's thinking the worst is coming, hear the drums drumming, hide in cash, secure that stash, risk keeps rising, IPOs tantalizing, but one day gains turn upside down, when the sun comes up, sellers come round. Higher for longer. That's the name of the game. We can sit on the bench, find someone to blame, or we can lace them up, give it a full core press. We run this floor together on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and roll down the window because sentiment stinks right now. Stock sank again last week as investors are getting used to the fact that high interest rates will remain higher for longer. We've known that for a while, but hearing how emphatically Fed Chair Jay Powell kept saying it at the FOMC press conference last Wednesday may have finally made it stick. And the prospect for one more rate hike this year kind of sounds like a certainty. As you obviously will have done, you will see that a majority of participants believe that it is more likely than not. that that it will be appropriate for us to raise rates one more time in the two remaining meetings this year i don't know how much clearer powell could be and investors got the message stocks and bonds got slapped pretty hard last week with the s p 500 falling 2.9 percent and the nasdaq slipping 3.6 percent. make that three weeks in a row of declines for those market weighted averages the dow fell 1.9 percent, and those treasury yields were popping with the 10-year yield topping 4.5 percent the highest level since 2007 the two-year yield hit a 2006 high and that leads us straight into our big three for the
1: week,
0: Number one, just to make sure everyone on this train knows where it's going, let's orient. When Fed officials assess where to set the federal funds rate, which is the target interest rate where the central bank thinks rates need to be in order to keep inflation around 2% and unemployment between 3.5% and 4%, they are making a prediction about the future. Specifically, they are trying to forecast where rates need to be in order to maintain some kind of economic harmony, or Goldilocks as some call it. A little growth, but not too much inflation. And everyone who needs a job can find one. For the past two decades, inflation has trended lower than 2%. But we've been living in a very low interest rate environment since the dot-com bubble. Some people call that ZERP. And no, that's not the name of a Martian who controls monetary policy. It stands for Zero Interest Rate Policy. When the U.S. economy would fall into trouble and the stock market would tank, the Federal Reserve would lower interest rates and buy back government bonds to rescue it. We got pretty used to that. It happened in 2007 following the dot-com bubble bubble 2008 following the great financial crisis and in 2020 at the onset of the pandemic low interest rates mean cheap money and cheap money means a lot of borrowing and a lot of risk-taking crypto nfts meme stocks spacs, the venture capital bonanza they are all outgrowths of zirp but cheap money creates bubbles and bubbles pop especially when rampant inflation comes to town like it did at the end of the pandemic last year Prices soared, and the only way to cool them down was by raising interest rates, which the Fed did here in the U.S., along with other big central banks around the world, except for China. It worked, just not all the way, and we're stuck with this sticky high inflation for food and shelter and very vulnerable to spikes in inflation when oil prices rise like they are right now. So now, according to the latest summary of economic projections from the Fed, it looks like we're going to have to get used to a higher Fed funds rate than we're used to for a longer period of time. The median projection for the federal funds rate at the end of the year is now 5.6%, implying one more rate hike in 2023. And most Fed officials believe the longer term Fed funds rate should be 3% or higher for the next several years. That's why short-term treasury yields are at 17-year highs. Borrowing money over the short term is more expensive. And when treasury yields are high, stocks, especially richly priced stocks compared to their earnings, come under pressure. Which leads us to number two. While the S&P 500 is still up 12.5% in 2023, which is kind of remarkable given how high treasury yields are, it's that concentration of the winners that a lot of people are worried about. Charlie Bellello calls them the enormous eight. NVIDIA, that's up 183% this year. Meta, up 150%. Tesla, 109%. Amazon, 55%. Alphabet, 50%. Apple, 35%. Microsoft, 35%. And Netflix, 31%. Outside of those heavyweights, the equal weighted S&P 500 is only up 3%. That's not good balance or good breath. And small cap stocks, which are extremely sensitive to high interest rates and slowing economic growth, are up just 1% and potentially headed lower. If investors keep losing that loving feeling for the enormous eight and bond yields remain high, look out for lower lows. And number three, The IPO gate has been kicked open in the past couple weeks after being locked up for the past year and a half. Chipmaker Arm Holdings, which is mostly controlled by Japan's SoftBank, was the first through the gate, popping 25% in its first day of trading. And Instacart followed last week, also rising as much as 40% in its debut before giving up much of those gains. While the first day pop is de rigueur for a lot of IPOs, those initial gains usually don't stick. Arm shares have fallen for five straight days and Instacart now trades at roughly half the $41 per share price that it listed with on Wednesday. According to Jay Ritter of the University of Florida, the expert on IPOs, the one-day IPO return or IPO pop from 1980 to 1920 averaged 18.4%. In 2020, during the pandemic IPO pop, thanks to those ultra-low interest rates, that was 38%. But on the second day of trading, after all those insiders who were given access to buy those pre-IPO shares at auction before they started trading on a public market had cashed out... More than half of IPOs trade lower than their initial price, and it gets worse from there for newly minted public companies. The 10 biggest US IPOs of the past four years, they're all down an average of 47% from the closing price on their first day of trading. Investors who bought at the top of an intraday price surge that often occurs during these high-profile listings would have fared even worse with an average loss of 53%. Only two of the stocks in those top 10 are up from their IPO prices, Snowflake and Airbnb. So just because it's new and shiny doesn't mean we need to buy it. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And it's the last week of September, mercifully, one of the cruelest months of the year for stocks. And this is one of the cruelest weeks, so brace yourselves. The good news is that the October through December stretch is historically one of the strongest periods of the year. Although many obstacles are on the track in front of us. The U.S. housing market will be back in focus this week as we get the latest reports on home prices from Kay Schiller and the Federal Housing Finance Agency for the month of July. You know the deal. Home prices keep rising on a monthly basis as supply remains tight and mortgage rates are at their highest level in 20 years. Not a lot of buying happening out there in this environment. And with mortgage rates expected to stay higher for longer, it could be this way until the spring. 80% of Americans say now is not a good time to buy a home. Fed Chair Jay Powell will hold the town hall style event this Thursday with educators and on Friday we'll get the personal consumption expenditures index the feds preferred inflation gauge higher oil and gas prices in the last month likely push the PCE index up a half a percent to three and a half percent on an annual rate. The Fed would like to see that number closer to two and a half percent, hence another possible rate hike at the November Fed meeting. We'll also get a few earnings reports this week from widely held companies, including Costco, Micron, Carnival Cruise Lines and Nike, to name a few. Just do it. And we are on government shutdown watch. Unless U.S. lawmakers can agree on a dozen spending appropriations bills by September 30th, the country faces its first federal shutdown since 2019. These higher interest rates have not helped matters as the cost of servicing the national debt is way more expensive. That debt, by the way, topped $33 trillion for the first time last week. The history of money is full of stories of power and the powerful, the rise and fall of larger than life characters and the ongoing battle between the haves and the have-nots. No one has covered these tales as brilliantly as Diana Henriquez, one of my favorite business journalists and who's already in the Business Journalism Hall of Fame. She's the author of half a dozen books, including The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust. She's a former staff writer for The New York Times, where she earned the George Polk Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. And she's out with a new book, Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's fight to regulate American capitalism. And she is our very special guest, this week on The Express. So humbled and delighted to have you on the show, Diana.
1: Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you.
0: This book is tremendous. This is a tremendous tome. Just came out in the last week or so. It takes us back to a key moment in history, 1929, and four key players who ultimately transformed American capitalism and investing all the way up to today. What made you want to write this book?
1: Well, you know, I had stumbled across a piece of this book when I was a baby business reporter, uh, the story of Richard Whitney the only president of the New York Stock Exchange, I guess I should say so far, to go to prison. And I read about him in a wonderful book called Once in Golconda by John Brooks, who was just the stellar business reporter for the New Yorker for many years. And I have a little bookshelf shrine of his books. And it left me wanting to know more. So that little germ of an idea had been in there for a long time. But each of the prior books that I've done, have, have taken me deeper into the bedrock of Wall Street history. I mean, Obviously, to write about Bernie Madoff, I had to go back into the origins of the over-the-counter market and the origins of NASDAQ. He was one of the pioneers of NASDAQ, so I needed to get my arms around that history. My book on the 87 crash, of course, took me well back into the 40s, 50s, 60s, as pension funds were starting to discover stocks and were about to revolutionize the market. So I've always loved financial history, and I've always felt that understanding the minutes of the last meeting was critical to being able to cover what's happening now. And so that passion has always been with me. But what really moved me to write this story now is that in my five prior books, I felt I was engaged in a debate about how to regulate finance, how best to regulate finance. The best way to regulate mutual funds in Fidelity's world, the best way to regulate investment managers in the Bernie Madoff situation, the best way to regulate derivatives in the 87. And in recent years, especially in the past five years, I've seen the debate, the public debate shift dramatically from how do we best do this to why are we doing this at all? Not how to regulate Wall Street, but whether to regulate wall street and i don't know caleb my head blew up i said are you kidding me
0: yeah what could go wrong without the guardrails
1: are you kidding me i said does nobody here remember and of course nobody does remember it was more than 90 years ago i said do you guys have any idea what it was like in america before there were these regulations we're like fish who don't understand water we have swum In the protections of Roosevelt's rules, our entire lives, everybody listening to this has never lived without FDIC protection in American banks, without SEC oversight of America's markets, without well-regulated mutual funds, without a, a strong federal reserve. They have no clue about what it was like. And we're not making this up. This is what it was like in the 1920s before Roosevelt's
0: reforms. Yeah, well, let's take us back in time to the roaring 20s, which were not that roaring, at least not for everybody. There was the gilded class that was having a grand old time up in the Catskills or out in Montauk or gallivanting around town and eating oysters. But that wasn't a great time for everybody. And it kind of led to a lot of this, including Black Thursday. But take us back to the roaring 20s. Set the scene in terms of the lack of regulation. It was the East, but it was really the wild, wild West for Wall Street.
1: So the early 20s, under the incredibly corrupt administration of Warren Harding, became a period of retrenchment, became a period when the powerful forces in society were reclaiming their privileges after a period during the war when they'd had to kind of go along and behave themselves. So as the economy began to roll, as you pointed out, it became very lopsided. The very wealthy were getting very much wealthier. But both through government policy and through just technology changes, the average American was having a pretty hard time. Machines in the first years of the 1920s, machinery, that is the automation of industry, wiped out 3 million jobs. A million of them never came back. Some of the biggest employment sectors, the textile industry, for example, was desperately depressed. Prices had not risen and wages were stagnant. The farm sector, an enormous part of the economy then, not so much now, but then a substantial part of the economy. The farm sector had been in a recession since the war ended. Farmers had been encouraged to increase their output because Europe's farms were battlefields now. And they were able to make a fortune selling to a market that used to belong to European farmers. But then the war ended and they were still producing. So these outlandish harvests Prices predictably plummeted. So farmers had never had been in a recession since the end of the war all through the 20s. Textile workers, miners, lumber workers, leather workers, all of them had been for various reasons stagnating and efforts to unionize, to ameliorate really horrendous working conditions and to get anything like a living wage were being met with billy clubs and blacklists and outright violence as industrialists just absolutely refused to consider union labor. So yes, the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, it's got a great press. I mean, it had a great PR office in the F. Scott Fitzgerald, but in reality, this was a difficult decade of struggle. There were multiple recessions. There There's an increasingly large gap it income uh, inequality. And so by the time we approach the end of that decade, 1928, 1929, the average American's life has become fairly precarious. And then, of course, we come to October, 1929.
0: Yeah, okay. Before we get to that fateful day, which is still etched in our memory, we're still talking about Black Thursday. What was Wall Street and the trading of securities like in those days? You mentioned Dick Whitney, who ended up being the president of the stock exchange. He was ultimately sent to prison. But what was it like? Was it ticker tape and people running orders? I know on the day of the crash, they were trying to telegraph or sell orders in. Just kind of paint the scene of inside the stock exchange down there on Pine and Wall back in the day.
1: First thing you need to know is stocks were pieces of paper back then. (laughs) They were not pixels and digits. They were pieces of paper. If I sold a stock to you, someone had to take that piece of paper from me, process it through the stock exchange, and deliver it to you. So the manpower involved in actually executing stock trades was beyond what we can even imagine now. There were fleets of young messenger boys. My father-in-law was one of them when he was 14 years old, a runner, they were called, who would carry millions of dollars worth of stock, stacks of paper, foot tall, back and forth for brokerage insurance. The newest technology was the high-speed ticker. Dick Whitney was very proud of that. It was running stock prices out on little ribbons that came out of little ticker tape machines that were all over the country in brokerage houses, sometimes in very posh men's clubs. Delmonico's had one near the bar, downtown. Yeah, near the
0: Oyster Bar, near the Raw Bar, of course.
1: So the technology felt new and modern to them. Yes, orders were coming in by telegraph. This was unbelievable. This was great, speeding things along to a breakneck pace as far as they were concerned. But Wall Street was still very much a private club. It was a club that was run by its members, the men who ran the big institutions, whether it was the Curb Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange or the Chicago Stock Exchange or the San Francisco Stock Exchange, every major city.
0: Kansas City, they all had
1: Absolutely, all had them. A- beautiful little buildings left out there across the country, by the way, that used to be stock exchanges. And the people who ran these, I was, I'm going to say the men who ran them, because they were all men. The men who ran them were the financial elite of their towns and cities, and the New York Stock Exchange was the king of the hill.
0: Which leads us to October 24th, 1929, Black Thursday, it's still known as that today, but just like pre-market trading, There were so many people that wanted to sell. It was a buildup over a few weeks, right, Diane? It wasn't that day all of a sudden. It was a buildup over a few weeks, but the orders were coming in via telegraph for people trying to bail out of their positions. Meanwhile, the president of the stock exchange is off on a fox hunt. What is going on on Black Thursday?
1: Well, Black Thursday, you're right, of course, Caleb. Like 1987, it didn't come out of a clear blue sky. The market had been choppy since September. There had been wild and crazy days, and then it would seem to get its footing again. Dick Whitney was actually only the vice president of the New York Stock Exchange at that point, but he was acting president because the formal president was off on a two-month honeymoon in Hawaii. So Dick Whitney is in charge. Wednesday, the 23rd, October 1929, was the worst day anyone could ever remember in the stock market. And Dick Whitney had not been there. He had been out acting as a steward at a fox and hounds meet in suburban Essex County.
0: As one does.
1: As one does. Far from the tickers and the telegram. So he came in the next morning, Thursday, the 24th. Everyone thought, well, we've had our crash. You saw this in 87. You know, okay, now we've had the crash. We all were afraid it was coming. We've had it. So but Whitney was chagrined that here was his big test as acting president of the stock exchange. And he missed it. He missed his audition. He was out in the Fox country. But as soon as trading opened on the 24th, it became clear that Wednesday was prelude. It was a tiny dress rehearsal for the chaos that was coming. On Wednesday, the, the price plunge had started in mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and had been stopped by the closing bell. Thursday morning, there's an entire day of trading ahead, and prices are just perpendicular coming down. There was enormous pressure on Whitney to close the exchange, not just from traders within the floor, but from the heads of Wall Street firms and banks who were panicked that things were getting out of control. And he stoically and wisely, I mean, he's, he is to some extent the villain of my piece, but he contributed greatly to our understanding of how markets need to work in a crisis. And he bravely withstood that pressure to close the exchange, but it was chaotic. At midday, he leaves the floor and goes across the street, across Broad Street, to 23 Wall Street, the opposite corner of the stock exchange, the headquarters of J.P. Morgan, where his brother... Is a senior partner. And the bankers who are gathered there looking very grim have pledged an unknown sum. Some say 240 million, some say twice that, but big money in those days to try to support the stock exchange, to try to support the stocks. I mean, there were stocks that couldn't even open, couldn't sustain trading because there were no bids. So they give Dick Whitney his marching orders and he returns to the four of the exchange. Starts placing strong bids well above the last reported price for U.S. Steel, for Westinghouse, for Radio R.C.A. and these bids called out in this clarion voice galvanized the panic traders. They they pull their socks up, they get, they, get, they pull themselves together. Say, okay, we're going to make it through. The big bankers are in action. We're going to make it through this, and it helped cushion the close of the day on the twenty fourth, and it literally made. Richard Whitney, a national figure, a national celebrity overnight. He woke up the next morning famous. He was all over the newspapers. And that spotlight never left him for the rest of his career. He became immediately the Prince of Wall Street, they called him.
0: Banks bailing out Wall Street led by J.P. Morgan sounds a lot like something we heard before (laughs) in 2008, maybe, maybe a little 2020 abetted by the government. But that's how things go. And that's exactly what I love about your reporting. All of these things, maybe they didn't happen before. They certainly do rhyme with a lot of things we've heard in the past. All right. Along comes FDR, who is the president now. He's pushing the New Deal through. He's trying to lift the country up literally off the ground in any way possible And he felt like this... Wall Street and the investing in securities and capitalism needed to be leveled. This was important for him. You quote him from a speech where he says, let's lift up the great mass of ordinary people, give them a living wage to spend safe ways to save and invest, a pension for the old age, affordable utility bills, and let them fuel a prosperous economy in which the rich can benefit along with everyone else. He wanted to put those rules in place to give everyone a fair shake. So the New Deal wasn't just about these programs. This was about you got to let regular American households into a system that is fair, otherwise we're all doomed. What do people miss about him in the New Deal and the importance of this regulation he was so passionate about?
1: Well, I was stunned, actually, when I started looking at the major FDR biographies, and there's a whole beautiful shelf of them, into the index, looking for securities and exchange commission, looking at Wall Street in the indexes. And you'd find two, three, maybe five citations. And in the entire I mean, this was a man who lived such a rich, full life and whose presidency was so important in this country's history that by the time he died in April of 1945, his financial reforms had already come to be taken for granted. They had already become the way capitalism works today. And so no one said, oh, gosh, we didn't have any of that before we had FDR. And it has never emerged as important a part of the New Deal as I believe it should have been. And that was part of why I decided to write this book. We, the capitalism before the New Deal and capitalism after the New Deal are two entirely different breeds of cat. And he saw something that I think we need to remember today, which is a healthy democracy requires a healthy economy. Not just healthy, not just strong, where lots of people can get rich fair, an economy that people feel is fair and gives them a fair shot, or they're not going to support the system at all.
0: So let's cut to today a little bit. Let's look at today's Securities and Exchange Commission. Gary Gensler, of course, the chair of that, facing a whole set of different challenges and an SEC in its 90-year history that's been watered down, rebuilt, watered down again. What do you think the future of these regulatory bodies are, and especially as the SEC is facing questions about whether or not they're going to allow crypto and ETFs with with Bitcoin and transparency for investors and all kinds of questions
1: the SEC is probably at one of the most critical moments in its evolution and I say that as someone who's been covering it for 50 years it's under judicial assault there are significant lawsuits making their way up through the courts that would kneecap the enforcement efforts of the SEC another lawsuit that would, blow up Fenra, the self-regulatory organization. So the system that we inherited for regulating Wall Street is under stress, both because of inadequate resources. And as you put all those barnacles and rust of legislative action and crimping and cutbacks that we've seen over the decades, it's hamstringed by that. At the same time, it's facing Regulatory challenges that would have had Roosevelt running, screaming from the room. I mean, crypto is one major challenge, but so is private equity investment. So is cross border capital flows. So is bank regulation and bank stability. We have meaningful regulatory challenges and we have an agency that's supposed to be addressing them in a climate and an environment where it can't get the budget it needs. It can't get the high-level appointees it needs. It does not get the presidential attention that it needs. It is under constant attack by the industries it regulates. And it's on a crowded, fragmented, balkanized playing field. Roosevelt wanted to put a cop on Wall Street, a cop on Wall Street. Now we've got the cop, the treasury agent, the CFTC agent. We've got the bank regulators. We've got the state securities regulators, we've got everybody and their brother down there. Instead of policing the street, they're arguing over who has jurisdiction. We've seen that in crypto. Instead of policing crypto, the commodity markets and the SEC quarrel over who had jurisdiction. For nearly a decade, debate goes, goes on. So I'm not here to defend the regulatory system we have now. I'm here to explain how it began what the original idealistic goal for it was, and what's hanging on us getting it right. It needs to be modernized. We need to end this fragmentation. We need to coordinate far better than we are. We need much more resources devoted to technology, risk assessment. We need better leadership and better communications with the public. But we're not going to get any of that if we just burn the whole thing down. And that's what I fear we're, we're standing by and watching it. As I said, that we've got a whole generation, an entire country of people who've been persuaded that regulation is inherently bad and deregulation, therefore, is inherently good. And that's just absurd. That's just absolutely absurd. You could only believe that if you've never read a history book in your life
0: was like the automobile industry before there were highways with actual laws, and the same can be said for the securities industry. All right. You know Investopedia, Diana, is a site built on our financial definitions and our terms. You have some juicy ones in the book, including painting the tape, which comes out of the 1920s when they were trying to uh, drive up stock prices at the end of the day when they literally could paint the tape. I would love to know your favorite financial term. We're going to link to it on Investopedia because you are one of my favorite business journalists of all time.
1: Oh, bless your heart. This has been going on in the back of my mind while we've been having this fascinating conversation. What are my favorite terms? I mean, I do love contango, out of the commodities markets. I just thought that was the neatest term. I mean, it sounded like something you should be doing in a long, slinky black velvet dress. The terms I really like have to do with short selling. And I always thought that short covering is one of the best and least understood terms. I deal with short selling a lot in the book because Herbert Hoover wanted to blow it up. He hated short selling. And Dick Whitney, to his credit, helped preserve short selling in today's market by gradually educating lawmakers and journalists about how short selling worked. And short covering was the process that was so poorly understood and yet was so critically important to arresting these sharp declines in stock markets. I vote for short covering.
0: I love that term. It's still happening today, still a very important part of the market, and also so misunderstood, but we love that that's your choice. Again, folks, taming the street, the old guard, the new deal, and FDR's fight to regulate American capitalism. Diana Enriquez, again, one of my favorite journalists, and it's such an honor to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks so much for joining
1: us. I've had a ball. Thank you.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the U.S. government, which, as we just mentioned, is staring down the possibility of a shutdown on October 1st if 12 annual appropriations bills are not passed by midnight next Saturday, September 30th. So what is an appropriations bill? Well, according to our favorite website, Appropriations bills are spending allocations by the government to fund various federal departments. According to the Anti-Deficiency Act of 1884, federal agencies cannot spend or obligate any money without an appropriation or other approval from Congress. When Congress fails to enact the 12 annual appropriations bills, federal agencies must cease all non-essential functions until Congress acts. This is known as a government shutdown. If Congress enacts some but not all of the 12 appropriations bills, only agencies without appropriations have to shut down This, my friends, is known as a partial shutdown. And by the looks of it, we could be facing a full government shutdown this weekend because some of our elected leaders would rather see that happen than compromise, especially with a presidential election on the horizon in 2024. We are running our bi-monthly investor sentiment survey again, and we want to know how you are feeling. Are you cautious, opportunistic, promiscuous, reticent, or just taking your time to see how things shake out in the markets and the economy? I'm in that camp, but we want to know how the smartest readers and listeners are holding up. We're going to link to the survey in the show notes, and we would love it if you'd take five minutes to tell us how you're doing. We'll share the results with you in a couple of weeks, as always. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Diana Enriquez for climbing aboard The Express to talk about her latest book and her incredible career in business journalism. She is a Hall of Famer for sure. We'll share some links to get Diana's book and access to all of her incredible work throughout her career. And you'll find those in the show notes, along with links to all the reports we cited on this week's show. And we'll talk again a little further on down the
1: line.